the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello, this is Kieran Hancock. Welcome to Inside Business. This week, I'll be dissecting Bank of Ireland's results with Joe Brennan of the Irish Times and good buddy stockbrokers analyst John Cronin. Record profits and a big payout to shareholders, yet the share price slumped 10%. So what's going on? In the second half of the show, John McCartney of BNP Paribas will explain why it's going to be a tenants market in the office sector for a few years to come. But first to Bank of Ireland. On Monday, it announced record profits for 2023 and a big payout to shareholders, yet the share price still dropped 10%. So what's going on? You'll hear in a few moments from good buddy analyst John Cronin, but I began by asking Joe Brennan of the Irish Times to take us through the headline-grabbing numbers and to give his view on the share price drop. Yeah, massive numbers from Bank of Ireland there out on Monday. Their uh, pre-tax profits rose by more than 90% to a record $1.9 billion. That was in excess of what they were generating even in the boom days before, before mm. the crash. We also saw them announce a, a larger, slightly larger than expected distribution to shareholders. $1.15 billion of uh, It's extraordinary, really, isn't it? Yeah, so what, kind of divided about 635, almost 635 million of, of dividends going out to shareholders. Now, obviously, uh, the mm. state no longer is a shareholder in the bank, so it's not one of the beneficiaries there. We always seem to get our timing right in these things, Joe. <laughs> We've got AIB. And then there is a, they, they announced a, a buyback uh, of about uh, 520 million of a buyback, and they, they've launched that since then. But uh, the share price uh, didn't react very well to it. Um, the share price actually fell more than 10.5% uh, on, on Monday. And effectively, the, it wiped off much, the, the, the wipe off the market Over a cap, billion euro. Yeah, which is essentially what they were uh, handing back to shareholders in terms How's of... How's the share dividends. price done since then, Joe? It's come back a bit. So yesterday it rallied, I think, about close to about 3%. It's up again uh, this morning. I think it's up, uh, it was up about 0.8% the last time I checked. So it's, it's kind of... It's kind of a, a moving slightly higher again, but it's, it's nowhere near where it was on Monday. And it's not like the share price had really taken off. Uh, the share price had uh, effectively doubled between late 2021 and March of last year in anticipation and actually during the, the, the first kind of of the uh, the first kind of wave of uh, interest rate hikes that we saw from the ECB as it looked to uh, rein in inflation. It has been kind of has come back a good bit since then. But it kind of rallied into the, into the results. So I think, yeah, I think the, the company itself was kind of caught in the hop by the extent of the sell-off. Now, there are a few things behind it. The earnings themselves were slightly weaker than expected. They put aside a larger than expected uh, provision or pot of money to uh, cover potential loan losses, about uh, 403 million uh, euros uh, worth of that. And while they saw that arrears, problem loans had come back, so non-performing loans ratio actually come back last year, and they expect that to fall further again this year. They put in kind of what they call a management overlay on top of the provisions they would normally set aside, just given the uncertainty around, largely around the commercial property market. They expect the commercial property prices to fall by about 10% this year. Their outlook, I think, was the was a, the, the kind of uh, mm. another area of disappointment, even though they're only marginally ahead of the market in terms of where they see interest rates uh, declining this year. The, the general expectation is, and it's certainly well flagged, that the ECB will um, is expected to kind of cut rates this year. It had moved its uh, main deposit rate from minus 0.5% to 4%. 
um, in the 15 months to uh, September of last year, the expectation in the market is that the guts of a one percentage point uh, decrease will will happen this year, whereas the company itself, in its forecasting, is talking about 1.25%. So it's not that mm. that that much ahead of it, but the, the market seems to be spooked by the earnings outlook for this year as well. Yeah, maybe we'll develop that, uh, John Cronin. You're obviously working in the markets here, talking to clients, a good buddy, uh, stockbrokers about stocks like uh, Bank of Ireland. So with record profits, as Joe outlined, and the fact that they're handing back more money to shareholders, essentially, than was expected, why was the market, you know, why did it price it down more than 10%? Yeah, it's a good question, Kieran. And um, look, I think there, there are a few things, and Joe has touched on some of those. Um, first of all, look, it's really relative to where expectations reside. And on that front, there were three disappointments, is how I would see it, on the day. Firstly, um, net interest income, as Joe has uh, spoken about, mm. was actually the headline number for 2023 was marginally below where the consensus expectations were from sell-side analysts. Um However, and there was some confusion on the morning of the results because, you know, people have very little time to digest these things and there are lots of moving parts. But there were there was a reclassification of UK personal loans into the non-core line. And when you basically adjust for that, it meant that the, the net interest income actually was in line, but that wasn't apparent to everybody in the market. Right. Um, and it took so poor communication by the bank on that front? Yeah, I mean, well, look, I wouldn't be too critical. I mean, it's very difficult to, you know, I think that this is simply a function as well of the fact that there are so many data points to digest on the morning of results. And there is a lot of complexity across the various income statement lines. So I, I wouldn't be too critical, but there was, there was some confusion for sure on the day. Now, the other thing I'd say on that as well is, look, the, the market... The, the sell-side consensus expectation doesn't necessarily reflect the market expectation. It can be somewhat lagged. So I think there was probably a degree of an expectation around a beat, and that didn't come through. So a, a kind of marginal negative there. I think to Joe's point on the, the outlook for net interest income, um, that, that was seen as weaker. Well, certainly they downgraded consensus expectations there. Part of that is driven by the... Um, the, the expectation around rate migration. So they do expect the ECB rate to fall to 2.75% by the end of 24, which, as Joe said, is about 25 to 30 basis points below the market expectation. But importantly, even within that, they do expect the first cut to come in April. And I was looking the other day at the probability of a rate reduction by the end of the April ECB Governing Council meeting, and that's just 27%. So, you know, it's a little bit front-end loaded mm. as well relative to what the market is expecting there. Um, now, there was a lot of talk on the call as well about, you know, the the, the, the adverse deposit mix trends in the Irish book. What does um, that mean? So basically, you're seeing current accounts and low interest earning demand accounts in certain cases migrate into term product. They called out 700 million of movement into the term book in H2. So people seeking out higher rates exactly. for money on deposit, essentially. Precisely, yeah. So about 700 million float flowed into the term mm. deposit book in the second half um, and they expect that you know the, they said the bulk of that was in the fourth quarter and they expect the, the fourth quarter experience to replicate in each quarter of the current year in each quarter of 2024 okay. now actually running some numbers on that if that were to manifest that would be a 25 million hit it's not huge numbers 50 million annualised 25 million to the extent it comes through in each quarter of this year 
And actually, look, it's UK deposits, really, which is where they are suffering. There was a significant uplift half on half in the second half there. Didn't really get much attention on the call. But when you kind of look and reflect on things afterwards, that that's that's where they've been hit. But, you know, it then, look, there are lots of moving parts in terms of the outlook. But it feels to me on balance that they've struck their con- their guidance pretty conservatively because there are a few factors underpinning that assessment on my part, one of which is the UK deposit costs should begin Mm -hmm. to fall back this year, which is consistent with what all the large banks in the UK are guiding, given expected official rate reduction. In fact, we've already seen that, to be honest, in the term deposit market in the UK. Um, Secondly, the structural hedges where they look to hedge out the interest rate risk um, associated with raising non-interest bearing deposits and equity. Um, those those hedges basically mean a sacrifice of some of the net interest income that they would have generated otherwise um, in a higher rate backdrop. But as the rates come back down, that will provide something of a tailwind. Um, so, you know, on the other hand, look, there are mm. negative forces, obviously, that the market is well aware of, like the, the, the amount sitting on reserve at the ECB and, and other central banks, which will as rates come back, generate a lower level of income. But all in all, my sense is that the guidance has been quite conservatively struck. And I think that that is also why, as the market gets its head around these numbers this week, um, why the share price is coming back a bit yeah. now. There's a bit of a rebound. Did you get a sense from the bank that they were surprised at the initial reaction uh, in share price terms? Yeah, we, we I suppose we no, we didn't engage directly with the bank in terms of their mm. view on the market response. And, you know, often management teams shy away from talking about the share price and try to, you know, just focus on running the business, which, to be fair, I think that's what Bank of Ireland is most focused on. Joe, what's, what's your sense? Yeah, so the CEO, um, Miles O'Grady, was asked uh, during the, the, the press briefing on about the share price reaction, the, the, the big share price reaction, and he said he remembers got, uh, advising uh, his predecessor uh, when he was uh, chief financial officer. Uh, the predecessor, obviously, was um, Francesca McDonough. He said he used to advise her never to look at the share price, and he said, he, look, he admitted he finds himself looking at the share price himself as well. It'd be but weird he, if he didn't. Yeah, um, but he did say, uh, you know, as the market gets time to digest this and they went immediately on a roadshow uh, went, I think they went to London on a Monday afternoon uh, and started talking to investors uh, and as they kind of speak to the numbers and the underlying factors to it he, he expected that there would be some sort of appreciation of that in, in the market and we've seen that in the last few days where there's been a bit of a clawback mm. in, terms of the, uh, in terms of the share price. So what's your sense Joe? Was it just that Bank of Ireland had, hadn't quite got the communication right in terms of the headline numbers and the way they were delivered out, as John was saying, maybe the snap assessment was that oh, things uh, things aren't quite right here. Yeah, again to John's point about the uh, about the UK loans. I mean that was that was flagged, but maybe uh, it took the market a bit of time to digest the impact mm. of that on on the net interest income. I think the market was was surprised by the level of. Uh, of uh, provisions that were set aside. Certainly when the company had said that its uh, its non-performing loans ratio had fallen from 3.6% to 3.1%, which is the lowest they've been since the beginning of the crisis, and they guided that each of their buckets. So they're kind of like problematic loans. They call them stage one, stage two, and stage three loans. Stage one loans are loans that are seen as performing in line with what they were ex- how they're expected to perform at the time when the loans are first granted. S- stage two are a bit wobbly. Stage three uh, would be loans that would be um, uh, impaired or, uh, or soured. 
and the two, the stage two and the stage three buckets both came down. So the, 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 the credit performance had actually improved on the year. And also the company, I think, guided on the analyst call that they expected the non-performing uh, loan ratio to fall again this year. So I suppose that was a, a, a negative, mm. certainly in terms of how the market kind of digested that. Yeah. John, it's one of three banks left in the Irish market and you'd almost think that the only thing Miles O'Grady has to do is get up in the morning and stand up straight to make money in this market with only effectively only two competitors when you consider what the competitive landscape was uh, years ago. Yeah, look, I, th- I think it's, a, it's certainly a very constructive market backdrop in the context of the remaining participants. Look, competition is still very evident across lo- lending segments. And, you know, we've seen that last year with Bank of Ireland. What's its market share now of new mortgages? So they wrote about 41% of the flow in the market in okay. 2023. And now AAB, they did what, what, what's AAB kind of low to mid-30s? Right. No, a bit lower. Um, and PTSB, well, was 23% in the first half, but its share in Q3 dipped back quite considerably to 16%. Yeah, look, I can I can see the argument you make, but I think look at the end of the day, look, it's all about risk management. It's all about capital allocation decisions, and these are decisions that are very important that can be go very badly wrong, as we've seen before, irrespective of the number of participants in a market. And you know, it's still pretty competitive in a mortgages context. Bank of Ireland has been pricing a little bit more aggressively than peers in the in the in in twenty twenty three. Now it did. The CEO did intimate on the call that one shouldn't extrapolate the share of flow experience in the mortgage market in 2023 going forward, which is suggestive, although not definitive, of a maybe a slightly lower, lesser appetite to compete at those price levels as we move forward in mm. a declining rate backdrop. They're so just if, the, if the ECB begins <clears throat> dropping its rates... Um, this year, maybe it's half year point, let's say. Yeah. Um, what do you expect the banks to do in response? Will they, because they haven't passed on all the increases no. that the ECB has put through um, over the past, whatever, 18 months or so. Um, so what would you expect the Irish, how would you expect the Irish banks to respond to a drop in rates? I don't think it will be linear. Um, and the danger is you, you, it's quite likely, in my view, that we see a significant response to, say, the first two to 25 BIPs cuts on the part of the ECB, where, you know, maybe optically from a customer perspective and politically as well, there needs to be, you know, maybe the banks feel it's sensible to move down rates, maybe not quite fully in line with the official Mm. rate reductions that end up being affected, but, you know, maybe most of the way there. Whereas I think that starts to subside as you get more and more rate cuts, because to your point, they didn't pass through the full extent of, of rate increases on the way up. And actually, you know, they were below 50%, in fact, in terms of pass-through rate. So I would expect possibly a similar kind of outturn on the way down. So definitely not full pass-through of the of the lower rates. I mean, you know, their spreads have compressed substantially in mortgages. It has, you know, what, rates what of attention among... Well, they're, they're writing probably new business at around 3.5%. Mm. Um, and in terms of deposit rates, uh, what, what would be your expectation? Will they will they trim them downwards as the ECB rate comes down? I think they'll be stickier. I think just given where they reside at the moment, and look, there are some attractive rates available on longer duration term product, but given the, you know, when you look at the average blended deposit mm. costs across the suite of deposit products as a whole, I think, you know, I think it would be a bit optimistic to think of that coming down materially. Um 
if anything, I think embedded within their guidance, and I can't prove this for a fact, but I suspect strongly that the banks are guiding to or assuming more and Bank of Ireland made the point on, on, on itself earlier this week that they are assuming more adverse mix shift, so more more fluent term as 2024 progresses. Um, so that's that's a headwind in terms of the overall deposit costs, but it's 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 not enormous as I outlined earlier. Yeah, sure. Um, Joe, in the annual report, it was outlined that uh, Patrick Kennedy is uh, stepping down as chairman. There's a process underway to identify a successor, and the annual report sort of made clear that they're looking at a higher fee for the successor and possibly a change in fees for the non-executive directors and potentially as well for the executives and a return of uh, bonuses at the bank, albeit on a on a very small scale. Yeah, so just maybe to address the bonuses issue first. So if you recall back in late 2022, you had then uh, Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue uh, announce at the end of a banking review that bonuses of up to 20,000 uh, would be introduced across the, the, the banking sector. In terms of Bank of Ireland, they had said last year that they would pay out a, a, a maximum bonus of about 10% of someone's salary to them up to uh, that pay cap. And uh, basically, the, the first kind of round of bonuses um, seemed to be about half that level, uh, about 5% uh, of, of, of that level uh, across the board. Um, so it be, remains to be seen what, what they do next year in terms of earnings. Obviously, earnings will be slightly lower, or their guiding earnings slightly lower uh, this year versus last year. Um, in terms of the chairman, yes, yeah, so Patrick um, Kennedy, he's actually in situ for 14 years, so he's well it's a long over. stint. Mm. Yeah, so look at the UK Corporate Governance Code, which is the code that the uh, Irish Stock Exchange would kind of adhere to, would kind of say that um, you should only really be a, only considered a, a, an independent director, an independent chairman of a company, um, an independent director as long as you're there in nine years. So he's, he's over that. Now, the company has said in, in, in recent years, as it defended uh, the extension of uh, of his chairmanship, um, said that, look, there's been a been through a lot of change, uh, not just at CEO level, but also a senior executive level. You've had COVID getting through that, and you've also had a number of acquisitions. So they've had, and he's also enjoyed, in fairness, a a very strong level of support from shareholders in each of the AGMs. So, but but it is time. Uh, you know, it's been long time that we've been expecting uh, Patrick Kennedy to step down. So the expectation is that he will depart at some stage this year. But the the, the company itself, the group, has said that look at the uh, the fees um, that have been earned by the chairman of the of the company. It's just shy of about four hundred thousand. It has remained, uh, it was actually downgraded to that level uh, back in 2009. It hasn't moved since then. And they're saying now that uh, the remuneration committee are saying now that they've agreed that they will need to raise that salary, Mm. raise that fee in order to attract the appropriate person. And they also make the argument that the role and the responsibilities of the chairman has also increased uh, since the... So what do you reckon, how much? Hard to know. Certainly an increase from there, 500,000. Okay, John. In in terms of remuneration, do you expect uh, the bank is no longer uh, owned by the taxpayer in any way, shape, or form? Would you expect uh, remuneration bonuses are still an issue, obviously, because of the you know super high tax rate that still applies uh, over twenty grand? But do you expect in salary terms uh, the Bank of Ireland will now start uh, moving upwards? I think very gradually. I mean, first of all, a couple of points to call out there. One is this this bonus that was announced or the variable remuneration that was announced this week to staff. You know, I believe 
left staff somewhat disappointed that 10% is, is where it's been struck. I can understand the logic in terms of why they've started to you know, get the ball rolling pretty slowly in that respect. Again, more broadly across, I mean, across the spectrum of, 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 of wages and salaries at the bank, I think you know, it'll be a, a slow grind up. Um, you know, cost management has always been a key focus at, at an executive level in Bank of Ireland. That was one other area where there was a very real disappointment in the update this week where the market had been assuming that costs would rise by 3.5%. Um, our analysts have been assuming 3.5% growth this year and and the bank revised that up to mid-single digits, so call it 5 even 6%. So there will be a huge focus on cost control in the year ahead. So no, I don't think there will be any, you know, runaway giveaways here. I think it will be, um, but but it's absolutely constructive to see that they are able to reward uh, top executives <coughs> and senior people within the bank who are vested with significant decision-making responsibilities uh, accordingly because, you know, the Irish banks mm. have been very uncompetitive. John, we have AIB and permanent TSB out with their full year results next year. What should we be keeping an eye on? What are you expecting? Yeah, I think again, look, there'll be a huge focus on Wednesday uh, on AIB in terms of the you know, size of the total distribution to shareholders. Having seen Bank of Ireland uh, announce 1.15 billion of distributions, there is the consensus expectation among analysts, again, is for about 1.4 billion there, with possibility that it might be higher. We'll, we'll just have to wait and see on that front. A mix of dividends and, and buybacks? Exactly. I think, look, more more biased towards buybacks, given where the share price is trading as a multiple of book value and in the context of the returns on tangible equity that it's generating. So buybacks are, you know, EPS accretive, so good for shareholders and there's certainly a, a preference in the market for the buybacks. But look, the income investors also like to see the cash dividends. So mm. they, they're going to, you know, they'll, they'll strike a sensible balance between the two. Um, you know, I don't think we'll necessarily get the same kind of disappointments as we got with Bank of Ireland. The market is already expecting higher cost growth for AIB next year of 5.3% in 24, I should say. And, you know, AIB has more capital, so that's why there is optionality to do a larger distribution to shareholders. But look, we'll, we'll see how they approach that. Yeah, okay. I should say you're working for good body stockbrokers and just for uh, transparency purposes, AIB owns uh, good body, so just to get that out of the way. Um, in terms of permanent TSB, uh, what are you expecting? Yeah, I think, look, um, they're still in transition phase, really. They've been through a substantive transformation, which has been handled very well. Um, you are going to, you know, it's still not churning out the kind of re returns on equity that the market would like to see, and hence it trades at a low multiple. I think, look, they're, you know, they've they've sort of moved away from reiterating medium-term targets in, in recent times, so I suspect there's an element of those being pushed out. Um, but I think, look, the, the kind of long-term investment case, they'll certainly be very clear that the story is intact, and we've noticed in recent um, published materials on the company website ahead of a conference that they attended in Florida in February, they have started writing about the uh, on the, the project that is underway with the, the regulator to re-examine the risk weights on its on its mortgage book. And look, I think that's just something something to bear in mind and is, you know, certainly a, a pillar of the longer term investment case here to the extent that some of those risk weights can come down. Basically what it means is they have to hold more capital for every loan they write versus AIB and Bank of Ireland. It's a three bank market. We can't really have a situation, you know, where if there's another mm. wobble 
that we can't see in front of us today. And PTSB is, you know, its profitability is more constrained or its returns are much lighter than the other two as we sit here today. You know, we can't really have a situation where they, you know, opt out of writing new business because, you know, the capital requirements are too high. So mm. we're hopeful, really hopeful that there can be some positive outcome to that, but it will take time. Yeah. Joe, we talked about uh, dividends uh, at Bank of Ireland and AIB. Where does permanent TSB stand in terms of a dividend payment? Yeah, so permanent TSB is alone among the three surviving lenders in not having returned to pay dividends since the uh, the beginning of the mm. crisis. They were allowed, so announcement came uh, just before Christmas that uh, regulators have lifted what was effectively a dividend stopper at the company. Now, I don't think there's any expectation of them paying out a dividend on uh, earnings for last year, but there may be an expectation that they may start paying dividends uh, next year. Um, so that's the thing there. Just in terms of um, AIB and and, and, and the, the level of distribution there, uh, another reason underlying the uh, the bias towards uh, share buybacks is that it's another way of managing the uh, reduction of the state stake in AIB. It's about, what, 40% at this stage. Um, the last two years it's had... Uh, used all of the money that's been allocated for buybacks towards a directed buyback, basically using the buyback uh, shares that are held by the state. So it's another way of, of managing down the, uh, the uh, state shareholding in, in the company. What's your expectation, Joe, for how long we'll continue to hold a stake of some sort in AIB? Um, well, probably a number of years yet, um, I would imagine. Um, and look permanent at TSB, probably a long number of years. A long, uh, the, 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 the What's your stake factor? there now? The permanent TSB stake is above 50%, 57%, John has reminded me, mm-hmm. um, 57%. And I suppose that's complicated by also the fact that NatWest, uh, mm. the owner of Ulster Bank, um, uh, received a 16.5% stake. Now, that's been reduced since then. Uh, there's a there's a, an agreement that w- that they would offer to each other if they're reducing shares to go in tandem. Um, but you have to just kind of be wary of, of, of when you when you move. They have to be aware of each other when they're looking to move on the on the shares. I imagine that the focus really is on AIB at the moment. Hmm. Right. Okay. And uh, just in terms of outlook, uh, John, um, for the three banks uh, for this year, is it broadly positive? Well, I think it is. I think, look, you are going to see, and Bank of Ireland has guided to this, um, okay, I've classified it as conservative on the income front, but, you know, lower rates will inflict some, you know, pressure on on, on revenues. Um, That's going to be the same for the other two banks as well. Um, I think it'll be contained, but I think the the outlook is still very positive in a in a returns context. But I think more specifically, when I look at where these banks are trading, as a multiple of book value relative to the returns they're generating, you know, they are trading at a discount effectively to banks in other jurisdictions, which aren't at demanding values valuations anyway. So it's kind of telling you the market, the implied kind of re- required rate of return for invest- investing in these banks is high teens, which is, you know, huge returns. So, you know, that's, that's something that could evolve. Yeah. Might there be international interest in somebody like Bank of Ireland, which is clean in terms of uh, its break from the state shareholding situation? Yeah, we haven't really seen the advent of cross-border European banking mergers or, or interna- I mean, they're few and far between. Um, I suppose banking is a local game, so the synergies aren't what they would be in other industries. So I'd be somewhat circumspect in relation to the likelihood that someone will spring from, mm. you know, another country and look to acquire Bank of Ireland. I mean, it's always a possibility, but one has to also bear in mind that banks in other jurisdictions are not trading at demanding multiples of book either. So actually, you know, it's not like... Mm. 
they're they're they while they're at a discount, it's yep. it's not enormous necessarily. Finally, too, Joe, uh, with Bank of Ireland starting to sort of move slowly on the pay issues, you know, for German non-executive directors and, and even executives, um, will AIB go again? Do you think in trying to persuade the government to do something for them? Um, so at the time of the the banking review again in late 2022, um, there were redacted versions of the the final report, and those versions had uh, recommendations from from officials in the Department of Finance, and they recommended that an ideal opportunity for the government to move on getting rid of the pay cap. Uh, leave aside the the, the bonus issue. Mm. Uh, getting rid of the the pay cap would be when the state goes below the fifty percent uh, level in, in 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 AIB, and that happened uh, last June, and we haven't seen it. And uh, the official line in the report itself, the the final report, was when it fell to an appropriate level. Uh, certainly, the Minister of Finance, uh, Michael McGrath, has uh, resisted giving any indication when asked what that appropriate level. Maybe so. It's hard to know. Uh, it's also potentially an election year, mm. uh, so it'll be difficult to do that as well. Another complicating factor is you can't have if they reach an appropriate level and you get there, you can't have the likes of uh, Bank of Ireland and AIB both with a lifting of the the pay cap and permanent TSB, which is nowhere near the other two banks in terms of uh, returns and uh, paying dividends or whatever to, to remunerating the shareholders. It'd be very difficult politically uh, to have a situation where you have two banks that are off paying uh, salaries that are unrestricted and you have the the, 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 the final bank which has enough issues of its own also uh, is hands behind, tied behind its back when it comes to remunerating its, its top executives. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one, as you say, yeah. uh, potentially an election year and Sinn Féin, you know, Support seems to have softened a bit of late, but nonetheless is still topping the polls. It's going to be an interesting one to watch. Yeah, well, look at share prices. You you have to imagine that you know some of the discount that's built into Irish banking shares at the moment is uncertainty, political uncertainty, uh, what the uh, the colour of the next government will be like. So you'd have to imagine that some of the discount that's been applied is, is down to that. Okay, Joe Brennan, John Cronin, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm going to take a short break now. In a few moments, John McCartney of BNP Paribas will join me to discuss the commercial property vacancy rate and why tenants might get some sweet deals in the office market for a few years to come. Back in a few moments. How can harnessing the power of AI help drive your business? At EY, we combine leading business expertise with cutting-edge technology and capabilities, working directly with you to plan your strategy we will accelerate your AI-enabled transformation. To learn more, visit ey.ai forward slash IE. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Latest data from GeoDirectory showed a 14% vacancy rate for commercial buildings nationally in the year to the end of December. This equates to some 30,000 empty commercial units across the country. John McCartney is Director and Head of Research at BNP Paribas Real Estate, and I began by asking him if the figures were a surprise. Well, there's no surprise, really, Kieran. So every organisation has a different way of calculating the vacancy rate, and they all vary at the margin. But broadly speaking, this is in line mm. with what we're seeing among commercial agents, for example, that are tracking vacancy in, in the office market. So uh, in that sense, it's not surprising. Vacancy has risen. Vacancy is somewhere in the mid-teens. Uh, that 
times, I think, with what, what we know from the commercial agents, I suppose the the uh, advantage of the geo directory is it covers a range of sectors that are maybe not so closely tracked by the commercial agents, like retail and, and so forth. Mm. So so it is it does seem to be a comprehensive indicator that's given a fairly straight read on, on what's going on. Yeah, I should have explained that. I suppose that it's all commercial units, isn't it, yeah. uh, across the country, uh, rather than just offices, which I know you track or you follow uh, very closely. So we're talking about just over 30,000 uh, empty commercial units across the country. The vacancy rate increasing in 20 out of the 26. Sligo had the highest uh, highest commercial vacancy rate at just over a fifth, 20.5%, followed by uh, Galway at 18.5%, Donegal 18.2%. The lowest rates uh, in uh, Meath, um, followed by Wexford and Cork, and Dublin's uh, rate increased slightly to 13.2%, so just below the the, the national average, um, as it were, is is a feature of this also the fact that we've had this shift online away from bricks and mortar. So some of the uh, retail units that would have been operating, particularly in small towns, may just now be boarded up, essentially. I think that that is right. I mean, the pattern that you described there, Kieran, mm. really reflects uh, the pattern of vacancy in the residential sector as well, which we, we know that residential vacancy is much higher in the western seaboard. And I think ultimately the reasons come down to demographics, really. Um, a lot of businesses, particularly retail businesses, they need uh, they need footfall, they need uh, vibrant uh, local communities, people mm. people traffic, and it, that you're just less likely to get that in some of the counties out to the west, and that's why the vacancy rate's higher. Yeah, so if we break it down to a town or area, Greystones in Wicklow was the one with the lowest uh, vacancy rate, just 5.6%, seems pretty good, and, and the one with the highest rate was Edgerstown in County Longford, 30.2%. Yeah. So the Greystones one is interesting because it is a location that benefits from, uh, you know, quite a lot of, as we say in the business, chimney pots. So it's a densely populated area. But equally, it wouldn't have been the focus for a lot of new commercial development. Uh, so really, there hasn't been a lot of retail development of any description in the last 20 years uh, in in Ireland. And the, so most of the commercial development has been in offices, and that has primarily been in Dublin city centre. So Greystones is probably benefiting from having the um, for, for retail businesses and so forth, a, f- a fairly strong population growth, um, but at the same time, it's not been swamped by new development. Right, OK. Now, let's talk about the office vacancy rate, because this is something you're uh, fairly familiar with. The last figure I saw for Dublin was 14.9%. Does that sound about right? Yeah, well, we're a little bit lower than that, about 13%, uh, 13.1%. But as I say, people differ mm. in the way they calculate this. In the way this. they measure, yeah. yeah. OK. So what are, the, what are you seeing in terms of uh, trends? Because we're told that more people are, are being mandated to go back to the office. Um, and, you know, the... The population continues to increase, the numbers of people at work continue to increase, uh, and certainly the numbers in Dublin (laughs) continue to increase. So what are you seeing in terms of uh, trends? Well, the vacancy rate was about 5% in Dublin pre-COVID. So if we go back to that quarter, let's say last... So it's almost trebled. Yeah, it has. Uh, And it's going to get worse before it gets better. So at the moment uh, in, in Dublin... Uh, there's about 412,000 square metres of office space under construction due to deliver by the end Mm. of 2025. Now, to contextualise that for your listeners, that's about 9.5% of the existing standing stock currently under construction for delivery within the next... This is all new stock coming on board. The next 21 months. Uh, So that's quite a lot of new stock to on board. 
And realistically, the demand isn't going to be strong enough to consume all of that additional space within that same time frame. And there's three factors that are really dragging on demand. Firstly, there's a bit of a slowdown in the global economy. And of course, Ireland is the classic small open economy. So maybe a pause on hiring, that type of thing. Exactly. Secondly, there is quite a sector-specific headwind coming from uh, the tech industry. So between uh, 2017 and 2019, inclusive tech accounted for over 50% of all office leasing in the Dublin market. Uh, But since then, really, tech firms have been sort of sitting on on their hands and uh, the the, the, the rate of hiring. Last year, they only accounted for 23% of take-up in a much reduced overall take-up level. So that's that's a drag on the sector. And then thirdly, there is this working from home. So interestingly, for, for the longest time, uh, a sort of a, a fairly reliable rule of thumb was that for each additional service sector job in Dublin, it would consume about 10 or 12 square metres of office space. If you go and recalculate just since the COVID pandemic, since the onset of COVID, and you take the increase uh, in service sector employment and divide that by the increase in occupied space, the the result comes out at about 3.2 square metres. So what's happening is hiring has decoupled from uh, office consumption. Uh, And that really reflects, I think, the fact that organisations are implementing roster systems and... Hot desking. Hot desking, all of that sort of thing. They're rationalising on their office space Mm. and and that is, uh, I think, going to remain a drag on the sector. So, to your question, are these return-to-office mandates gaining momentum? I'm not sure that that is the case. We do have some hard data on this that only came out actually this week from the Labour Force Survey. So, every quarter, the Labour Force Survey provides a measure of uh, how many people are are usually or sometimes uh, working from home. And it appears to have stabilised over the last 15 months. So it sort of, it spiked up very sharply during the COVID pandemic. Then it began to retreat. But from Q3 2022, it has more or less stabilised now. Right, so what does that tell us? What's the future for the market? Well, I think what it tells us, Kieran, is uh, that we're we're potentially now at a new sort of steady state equilibrium and uh, that that firms are are now acquiring office space with a plan in mind that they're not going to have everybody in every day of the week, that they're going to have people in two or three days a week. So going back to your point whereby we're going to have an additional 9.5% of additional space by the end of 25, uh, what becomes of that space? I mean, are they going to be able to let it or are they going to have to repurpose some of it or some of the old stock? going to have to be repurposed. Yeah, so they will be able to let it and it's only a question of how long it's going to take. So to put the numbers on it, Kieran, um, by the time we reach peak vacancy based on the pipeline of construction and any reasonable, I think, estimates of how much demand there is in the market to consume that, I think we will now get to peak vacancy somewhere around the end of next year. So previously we had thought it would be earlier, but there was quite a bit of the the stock that's going to be delivered this year and next year was delayed from 2023. So that will now pile into this year in addition to what was already scheduled for this year. And when you talk about peak vacancy rate, what 
number are you putting on it? I think about 16 and a half, somewhere between 16 and a half and 17 percent. Now, to put mm. that in perspective, if we go back to 2010 during the global financial crisis, we reached nearly 24 percent vacancy. So we shouldn't catastrophize about this. It is in, in, in that respect, it's a common or garden downswing in, in the market. And they happen all the time. Um, I think what will be different in, in, in this cycle will be how long it takes to recover back to level par. So if we get to 16.5% vacancy, that equates to about 250,000 square metres of excess vacant space. And in the old days, you could have been sure that that would have Every, every net additional service sector job would have eaten away about 10 square metres of that space. So if you created 25,000 net additional service sector jobs in Dublin, then you'd be back to um, a balanced market. Today, if the current ratio of 3.2 square metres holds, holds firm, then it's, it could take you up to 78,000 jobs to, di- <coughs> to digest that excess additional space. And that's obviously going to take longer. And just for reference, Kieran, over the last 10 years in Dublin, we have created on average about 10,000 net additional service sector jobs. So it could be seven or eight years, potentially? Could be potentially. Um, You know, it just depends on jobs growth. But I think the critical point is that it will be digested it really and, and it will be digested because of jobs growth. Um, okay. Now, if I look across the street here, there's a, a very fine office building uh, nearing the end of its construction phase. It's owned by Marlott. Mm-hmm. I'm not aware of any tenants having signed up. Some may have, uh, but I'm, I'm certainly not aware of an anchor tenant having signed up yet. So what does a company like Marlott uh, do in this situation? Does it sit and wait, the, you know, I don't know, two, three, four, five years before it's fully let and just, just wait it out? Or does it make an early decision and repurpose, at least repurpose some of it for some other purpose? Well, I think the likelihood for buildings like like uh, the one across the road is that they will be let. Now, it might take a little bit longer uh, than the developers would have uh, anticipated. What they would have liked to have happened was that that building would have been let before the construction phase yeah. was complete. And then they use the certainty of having a tenant signed up to refinance and 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 and. and uh, reduced pre-let, uh, essentially. A, a pre-let essentially yeah so that obviously hasn't happened and it hasn't happened for a, a, a lot of the office buildings that have been developed we think there's going to be 19 office blocks completed this year and the majority of them are not pre-let um, so that is I- inherently uh, a challenge for the, the developers but at the end of the day, because these buildings do have these high specifications and they're low carbon buildings, and that ticks the boxes for certain high-end global corporate occupiers, I think they will be let, uh, and I think there will be action on all or most of those buildings, and they will get let. The real question is what happens to the space that that the occupiers of of these new buildings leave behind wherever they're moving from. It's the second order effect. So, you know, if somebody moves into Marlott's building across the road, where are they coming from? And do they leave vacant space behind? And how long does it take to lease that less attractive space? And what price can the Mm. landlord get for that space? And how much of any of the surplus space that's going to be in the market, let's say, by the end of 2025, will actually be repurposed, whether it's for housing or for a hotel or retail or some other purpose? I think probably 
not too much of it, Kieran. And so I think there's a number of reasons for that. Firstly, there's the physical attributes of the buildings. So um, obviously, office buildings, and particularly the more the, the you know the newer ones, purpose-built offices, they're quite deep um, from front to back, and when you convert them into residential uh, properties average room sizes within residences are fairly small so it creates an inherent challenge trying to get natural light Mm. into the middle of those buildings so that's uh, clearly uh, an issue but I think possibly the bigger issue is just making making it stack up financially so in order to make a conversion pay you would nearly need to be buying the asset at, 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 at such a heavily discounted price, it was nearly worthless because the conversion costs are, are likely to be mm. so great. And there is no evidence, I think, yet that older office buildings have been that heavily discounted and they may not get there. I know that agents are very keen to um, extol the virtues of brand new office buildings and they certainly will appeal to uh, the type of tenants that we discussed a moment ago, the, the the international corporates operating at a high level. But there's still plenty of demand uh, for the older office blocks as well, as long as they're priced right. And so I think it is unlikely that entry yields will rise to a point, or if, if you like, uh, the value of those properties will drop to a point where somebody can buy them repurpose them as residential properties and, and, and flip them on at a profit. I think that's going to be a tough one to achieve. So what happens? They just wait it out and and eventually get an occupier? Yeah. I, what, what will happen is that they will cut the rent and we, we see it all, all, dynamics all the time. It. It's just pure economics. And, and I think this is really the fallacy, Kieran, of the argument, you know, that that um, the top-end grade-A buildings are impervious to rising vacancy rate because, you know, they're high-spec, ESG-compliant, low-carbon buildings and there's nothing to compete with them. In reality, what will happen is if you get vacancy at any level of the market, let's think of a a simplified three-tier system, uh, and you've got vacancy in the grade-C offices, the low-quality ones, well, what's the landlord going to do? He's going to cut his rent until he's competitive with the grade B guy. The grade B guy then has to countercut to retain his competitive edge, and that passes the problem then up to the grade A guy. And so I think rising vacancy is immediately going to impact on the rents that are achievable for those older Mm. offices, and they will become occupied because they'll just drop the rents to ensure that happens. But eventually that will percolate up and it will impact on on grade A rents. Sounds like it's going to be a tenants market for the next few years. I think so, yeah. Okay, John McCartney, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Joe Brennan, John Cronin and John McCartney for joining me on the show. John Casey produced this episode with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on X, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. <laughs>